Let's join, join me in prayer one more time as we prepare to hear the word today. Uh, Father, we, we do need you. Uh, and this need is not simply an aspect of our fallenness and our sinfulness. This is an aspect of our creatureliness. We need you because you are the creator and we are the created. And we live in a completely dependent relationship upon you. We need you for life and breath and everything. We need you for daily bread. And whatever that provision might mean in our lives today, we need you for that. We are completely and wholly and utterly in need of you. We could not ever overstate our need of you simply as creatures. And yet, we have in our sin and our need of you rejected you. Totally dependent on you, we have chosen to live apart from you. We have refused to acknowledge you. And for dependent creatures to reject the giver of life, of course the wages of sin is death. We cannot live apart from you. And yet, Lord, as we now stand in need, not just as creatures, but as fallen sinners, we thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God who provides what we need. You provide atonement. You provide a lamb without spot or blemish in Jesus Christ. You provide forgiveness and grace and mercy justification, reconciliation, adoption, hope. Lord, you provide all of this to us, and we thank you for being the God who meets us in our need with provision. And Lord, now as we open your word, we confess that we need you now. If these moments will be fruitful in our hearts and lives, then we need you to open our eyes and to unfold your word to our hearts and to give us a humble and ready spirit to, to respond to what you have said to us, what you are saying to us this morning. And so, Lord, we do pray for your illumination as those who know we can never truly understand uh, the words of your Spirit to us, apart from your Spirit's own making them known. We pray for that illumination now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we live in a culture that clamors for justice. You know, it wasn't always this way. I feel like growing up, um, I would have said we live in a culture that, that the main ethos is forgive, forgiveness. But it's not that way anymore. The, the, the main message of our culture today is justice. We clamor for justice. We live in a culture that demands for wrongs to be made right. We live in a culture that demands the payment of debts. And on top of that, we live in a culture that believes that that justice will only be achieved through conflict 
and through power. Through conflict, whether it be political conflict or some other form of conflict, through conflict, the right people will have the power to bring justice. That, that is justice from the perspective of those in power. But through power, they will be able to bring justice. This, this is what our culture demands. This is what our culture works toward. This is not unlike the thought of first century Jews. They lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire, under the corruption of puppet kings and leaders in their own land. They also lived in the hope that God would soon send the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king, and that this Messiah would conquer their enemies and bring about justice on their behalf. Now God did send the Messiah as he promised, but this Messiah did not fulfill the expectations of the people. Instead, he fulfilled the scriptures. He fulfilled the scriptures. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 12. Our passage this morning is Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. And we're in a series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And along those lines, I want to point out that this morning's passage is, is really one of the key sections of the entire book of Matthew. There are certain texts that rise to the top. You might say they're, they are paradigm texts for us. And this morning's passage is one of them. Again, one of Matthew's main points in the book is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. This morning before us, we have Matthew's longest quotation from the Old Testament. It makes up almost the entirety of our passage today. Again, it's what you could call a paradigm text for understanding uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ and in what way he fulfills the scriptures. It explains to us who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and how Jesus accomplishes his mission. And here's what we're going to see this morning. This is the main idea this morning, if you're writing this down. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord who brings justice to the world through gentle and lowly ministry. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord who brings justice to the world through gentle and lowly ministry to broken people. This is who he is. He's the servant of the Lord. This is what he came to do, to bring justice to the world, to the nations, to all people. And how does he do this? Through gentle and lowly ministry. That's what we're going to see this morning. Let's read the text together. It's uh, Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Verses 15 and 16 set the stage for Matthew's quotation from Isaiah. Uh, just, just, let's just look at verses 15 and 16 briefly, and then we'll get into uh, the Isaiah quote together. But look at how it begins. Jesus, aware of this, so we are obviously picking up 
uh, in, in the middle of something. What is Jesus aware of? Look at back at verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus, aware that the Pharisees were conspiring to destroy him, what did he do? What would you do? I mean, you had the power to cast out demons, the power to calm storms, the power to raise the dead. Think about how Jesus could have responded to this plot and to this opposition. But what did he do? He withdrew from there. What kind of Messiah is this that withdraws from opposition? And again, conquering king. So the Messiah is supposed to be. Well, he's, he's withdrawing from opposition. It says he withdrew, and many followed him, and he healed them all. So he didn't go into hiding. He, he wasn't hiding. He, he withdrew into obscurity. He went to somewhere uh, less populous. And there was a band of broken people following after him. The text tells us that he healed them all, which means, of course, that everyone who followed him needed healing. All that were coming after him were broken people needing Jesus. And yet, again, we see something odd. Look at what he says to them. He ordered them not to make him known. Again, what kind of Messiah is this that tells his followers to keep quiet about him? What kind of Messiah is this? That's the question that Matthew's answering in this passage. And again, the answer, we've, we've seen it, he is the servant of the Lord who brings justice to the world through gentle and lowly ministry. We're going to get into how Matthew shows us that today. He points his readers to Isaiah 42. When, when, when Matthew sees the withdrawing of Jesus from opposition, when Matthew sees the healing of broken people, when Matthew sees the ordering of them not to make him known, he sees the fulfillment of Scripture. Again, this is not what the people expected, but this is what Scripture said the Messiah would be like. And he wants us to understand that. So we're going to see this morning three things about Christ that help us understand the kind of Messiah he is. And as we do that, we're also going to see what it means to be followers of this Messiah. Again, he's the fulfillment, and we are following the fulfillment. So what does it look like to follow this kind of Messiah? We're going to answer that question this morning as well. So three things that help us understand Jesus this morning, the kind of Messiah Jesus is. The first thing we see is Christ's vocation. Christ's vocation. Not vacation, vocation. Okay? Dan knows a little bit about vocation because he taught a build lesson on vocation a few months ago. And so Christ's vocation is what we're talking about. It's not a word that we often use today, but it's a helpful term to understand the nature of Jesus' ministry. We use vocation sometimes to refer to someone's job, what's your vocation, but it's much bigger than that. The, the, the idea of vocation is someone's calling. It's someone's calling, and, and, and in a biblical worldview, it is someone's designated role under God's good purposes. Vocation is God's calling as he carries out his good redemptive purposes for the world. So what, what is the Messiah's vocation? You know, the people expected his vocation to be conquering king. But that's not what we see. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. Well, 
there's three things that we see there about the Messiah. And I want to look at the second phrases first. He says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This in the Old Testament is son language. This is, this is the language that God used to talk about the king of Israel. Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's, it's, it's language to talk about God's special relationship with his king. Jesus, as the son of God, fulfills this. This, this is son and Messiah language. I will put my spirit upon him. Again, the king of Israel was anointed with the Spirit, especially endowed with the Spirit. So all of this is Messiah language. All right, that, that, the, the Israelites would have read these prophecies and said, he's talking about the Messiah. But what they would have been confused by is how it begins. My servant whom I have chosen. Son, yes, we get that. Anointed with the Spirit, yes, we get that. Servant, my servant whom I have chosen. That's the vocation of this Messiah. The vocation of the Messiah, the calling of the Messiah is to be the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book. Matthew's 28 chapters, and it's taking us several years to get through it. We might never get through Isaiah if we start it, right? Isaiah is a big book. But in, in, the, in the second half, Isaiah uh, in the first half of the book essentially is about the coming judgment of God against his unrepentant people. But as the second half of the book begins, it's about the coming comfort and salvation of God. And very early in these chapters, a figure appears on the scene in Isaiah called the servant of the Lord. And this is the first time in Isaiah chapter 42 that, that this servant figure appears as part of God's plan to save and restore Israel from their exile. And what we have in Isaiah from this point on is several servant psalms is what they're called. Isaiah's poetry. And so they're servant psalms. They're, they're, they're psalms about the servant of the Lord and about his role in God's plan to save his people. And as you read these servant psalms, you get a, a little bit of a confusing picture of the servant. Because sometimes it seems like the servant is Israel, the nation of Israel. And what you are reading in Isaiah is that the servant is the nation of Israel whom God chose to represent him in the world and to be a light to the nations and to bring about his promise to bless all the nations through his people. So sometimes that's the language of servant. The servant was supposed to be Israel, but what we see is that Israel failed in this calling. Israel failed to be the servant they were called to be. They failed in that calling. And so then there's this other aspect as we read the servant psalms where we realize it's not, this doesn't sound like the nation. This is, this is talking about an individual. This is talking about a person. And here's how these things relate. The nation of Israel was called to be the servant, but they failed. And so God said, I'm going to, Send the Messiah to take your place, to represent you, to do what you did not do, to be what you were not, Israel, to be the servant of the Lord. The, the servant of the Lord is a figure that ultimately stands for the one who represents Israel after Israel failed to, 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 to do what Israel did not do in the world. And, and that's what Matthew is saying Jesus is doing. He's the Messiah who is the servant of the Lord, who came to do what Israel did not do. To, to fulfill the mission Israel did not fulfill. We're going to see that in a second, but before we go on, we can't miss the truth that the word is servant. 
servant. This has to do with submission. This has to do with lowliness. This has to do with menial work. The Messiah is the king, but the king is the servant. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus is. A servant king. Now before we go further, we want to apply this as those who follow this servant king. And we need to understand that we are servants of the servant. We are are servants of the servant of the Lord. Think about how the apostles always talked about themselves in their letters. They're the highest authorities in the early church, and yet they continually say, servant of Christ Jesus. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. This this is the vocation of Christ's followers. Think about Jesus' example in John 13. He washes the disciples' feet, a task reserved for the lowliest of servants. And then he says this to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I, your master, am a servant, then you are also servants. Church family, if being a servant is Christ's vocation, then it's our vocation. This is our vocation. This is our calling. We are servants of Christ Jesus in the world. You are a servant of Christ Jesus in the world if you are a disciple of Jesus. We serve him by serving one another and this world. We we don't have rights. We don't have rights. We We don't live our days acting like we are the deciders of what we do and we are the deciders of how we live. No, we are servants living in submission to a master who tells us what to do. There's no task that we should be unwilling to take on. A servant can't say to his master, I'm not going to do that. No, we we live as servants. We live with the mentality of the apostles. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. This is our vocation because it's Christ's vocation. We're servants of the servant king. We talked about the vocation of Christ. He's the servant of the Lord, but now let's ask, what is this servant called to do? What did Israel fail to do that Jesus did? What is the servant's task? And this brings us to the second thing we need to see is Christ's mission. We've seen Christ's vocation. He's the servant of the Lord. Second, Christ's mission. What is the servant's mission? And here, back in Matthew, look at the end of verse 18. It says, I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then skip down a few verses to the end of this quotation. He says, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will bring justice to victory. In his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the mission of the servant, to bring justice to victory. And this is what the Jews were hoping for, right? For the Messiah to come and to conquer their enemies and to establish justice and righteousness in the world. But we need to notice what the text says. It doesn't say justice to Israel. It doesn't say justice against the Gentiles. It says justice to the Gentiles. The servant was going to bring justice to victory on behalf of the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Israelites. And and the exclamation point is this, in his name the Gentiles will hope. The Gentiles are going to find hope in this servant who brings justice. If you keep reading the servant songs, a few chapters later, here's what we read in Isaiah 49. 
Listen to these words. And now the Lord says, He who formed me to be, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here's what he says about the servant of the Lord whose, whose calling was to represent Israel and to bring back Israel. He says, that's not enough. God says, that's, that's too light a thing. That's too little a thing. Let's make this bigger. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to bring back the nations through this servant. You'll be a light to the nations. My salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, every people, every language. This is Christ's mission. This is the task of the servant of the Lord, to bring justice to victory on behalf of all people, to bring righteousness across all the earth, to bring hope to all nations, not just for Israel, but to the ends of the earth. This is the mission of the servant, to establish righteousness everywhere. And I mean, we look today at the news, if you go to the world news, and we see, we see terrible things happening all over the world, don't we? We're following these stories and wondering what's going to happen over here in Russia, over here in China, or over here in South America, or over here in our country. We, this is the mission of the servant, to establish justice and righteousness across the face of the earth. That's what the Messiah would do. That's what the servant would do. To apply this, if Christ's mission was to bring salvation and righteousness to all the earth, we need to understand that Christ's mission is our mission. If we're following him, then his mission is our mission. And this is why Matthew ends the gospel the way he does. The great commission at Matthew 28 is tied to Christ's mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We go to all nations because this is the mission of Jesus. This is our aim, Redeemer, to take the hope of the gospel to all people, to our community and our region and our world. Until Every tribe and every people and every language on the face of the earth place their hope in the name of Jesus Christ. I just want to meditate on that word hope for a second. It's the, it's the only time Matthew uses the word hope in the whole gospel of Matthew. And, and, and just to think about that idea that the Gentiles find their hope. They find their reason to believe that things will get better. They, they, they find their comfort and joy. They find their optimism. They find, they find the ability to continue in his name. All that hope might entail it's in the name of the servant of the Lord. This was the mission of Jesus. And so we've seen his vocation. He's the servant of the Lord. We've seen his mission to bring justice to victory. Now we need to ask how. How will Jesus do this? How will the Messiah establish the world in justice? How will the Messiah bring righteousness to the ends of the earth? Bring salvation to the ends of the earth? This is the third thing we need to understand is his actions, Christ's actions. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So these verses tell us 
first of all, what Christ would not do. When I say his actions, well, here's what his actions were not, right? He does not quarrel or cry out. Right? This is what we see in response to the Pharisees. They come at him with fierce opposition, and they want to destroy him, but the Messiah does not fight back. He lets it be. He withdraws from the scene. He doesn't increase conflict. He keeps peace. He didn't quarrel or cry out or shout aloud. No, he does not raise his voice in the streets. This is what we see in his instructions to those he healed. He said, don't tell anyone about it. He's not raising his voice. He's not, he's not trying to increase his fame. He's not seeking a crowd. The Messiah works in obscurity, in little places, and lives a quiet life, and seeks to keep what he's doing quiet. He does not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. Here's what we need to know about these two images. Reeds and wicks were useful and inexpensive. They were useful and inexpensive. So people would use reeds for a number of everyday purposes, such as writing utensils or measuring sticks. And a wick, of course, would be used to give light. So these are very functional things, right? These are things that you could just use in everyday life. And at the same time, they were inexpensive and easy to replace. So because of this, the most common sense thing to do with a broken reed or a smoldering wick would be to throw it away and replace it with a good one. I mean, it's not worth the time. This would be like uh, if I had a stack of post-its. And you guys know post-it notes or sticky notes. Do they call them stickies now? A stack of post-its, and I'm, using, I'm writing on one, and it tears. And instead of just going to the next one, I, I start working on it with tape and mending it together and trying to, to, to get this post-it to be the post-it I'm using when there's a whole pile of cheap post-its right here. And of course, that would, it doesn't make sense, right? You would just throw it away. Well, that's, what, that's the point, is these things were functional, but they were so easy to replace. So you would never take the time to mend a bruised reed or to, or to keep a smoldering wick going. But that's not how Christ is with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And of course, this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for broken people. It's a metaphor for the kind of people that were coming to him for healing. Sinners and sufferers that the world discounts and discards and says, you're no good. You don't have anything to contribute. We're better off without you. Jesus doesn't discount and discard the broken or the needy or the suffering or the sinner. No, just as he said he is, so he does. He's a gentle and lowly Savior who gently mends the bruised reed and who keeps the smoldering wick aflame. He goes to the lowly and he invites the lowly to himself. These are the actions of Christ. And listen, this is the most unexpected way of bringing justice to victory that we could ever think of. Withdrawing from opposition, working in obscurity, healing broken people? How would this gentle and lowly Jesus ever bring about victory for the nations, justice to the nations? How does this work? How do you get from, from this obscure, broken, quiet ministry to justice across the face of the earth? Well, here's how, by going even lower than this. The lowliness of Jesus' ministry to people finds fulfillment in the lowliness of the servant in the cross. 
the final servant song comes in Isaiah 52 and 53. Turn there with me, church. We need to see it for ourselves. Isaiah 52, verse 13 is where we will begin. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which was not been told that in them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll stop there. You see, the servant of the Lord would only withdraw from opposition for a time. When the hour came, Jesus didn't withdraw. But he also didn't fight back. No, he allowed himself to be taken, arrested, tried, flogged, and ultimately crucified. And this servant song tells us that in this suffering and this death, the servant was taking the place of sinners and dying for their iniquities. You know, there's a mysterious paradox in, in the Isaiah text, and that is the relationship between justice and hope. Justice and hope. See, justice brings hope to those who are victims of injustice. If you're a victim of injustice, then you want justice, and, and that justice holds out hope to you that what has been done wrong to you will be made right. But justice is not hope for the perpetrator of injustice. Perpetrators of injustice don't hope for justice. They hope for mercy. Well, according to Isaiah, we are all the perpetrators of injustice. We are the unjust ones. We are the ones who have gone astray. We are the ones who have done wrong. Justice is not good news for us. Justice does not bring hope to us. So how does the servant of the Lord bring both justice and hope? How does a lowly Messiah bring justice to victory for nations who have gone astray? He does it by bearing the strokes of justice for us. He does it by taking the punishment that justice demands for us. He does it by paying the debt for us, by dying the death that we deserve to die. This is how the servant of the Lord accomplishes the mission of the Lord. He extends mercy to us through his work 
of satisfying justice in our place. This is how the Messiah brings justice to victory for all who hope in his name. We can come to the nations and we can say to all people that justice has been satisfied in your place through the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ the King. And he has risen again and he extends mercy to you today. Jesus is the servant of the Lord who brings justice to the world through gentle and lowly ministry to broken people, ultimately through the cross. And to apply this church, Christ's ministry, this is our example for ministry as we follow him. Listen, our ministry must not be marked by worldliness. We must not be marked by quarreling and conflict. There's a lot of quarreling and conflict that is going on in the church today. That's not going to advance the gospel. We must not pursue fame or influence. We don't, we don't need a, a wonderful social media presence. We don't need influencers to attach themselves to our church so we can, so we can spread the word and blow this up. No, victory doesn't come through power. The gospel doesn't advance the way that the world thinks things advance. No, like Jesus, we must gladly minister in obscurity to the broken. We must gladly minister in obscurity to broken people. We must carry out gentle and lowly ministry to sinners and sufferers. We must humbly and lovingly sacrifice ourselves and our time and our plans and our resources in order to bring the hope of Christ's cross to the world. This is how the gospel advances in the world. We follow what Jesus did. We are servants and we suffer and we give and we do it in obscurity and joy and gentleness and lowliness. And church, this is hard and difficult ministry. Some of you have been in the thick of it recently. And this morning I want to close with two motivations for us to continue in this ministry. First, if we're going to minister to broken people with gentleness and lowliness, we need to remember that we were broken people. This text is not about other people out there who are bruised and broken and we're the ones who have it all together and come and fix them and make things right. No, we are all bruised reeds. We are all smoldering wicks. We are all fallen and broken and can't do anything. And the only difference, church, between us and anyone else, no matter how broken they might be, the only difference is that someone pointed us to Christ for healing. The only difference is that we have found a Savior. The only difference is that Jesus has taken us and mended us and kept us aflame and, and been gentle toward us and that we have experienced His restoration. That's the only difference between us and anybody else that you might encounter. If we start thinking that God can't save someone who seems broken beyond repair to us, it's because we don't believe we're broken. We don't believe that's us. We don't believe that could be us. But it is. It's all of us. 
We are all bruised reeds, and we need to remember that, and that Christ has mended us, and Christ can transform any life, because that's who he is. So first, remember that we are broken and that Christ is our healer. And second, church, second motivation to close in this, in this gentle and lowly ministry is to know that just as the Lord delights in Jesus Christ, his servant, so he delights in you as you serve Christ like this. Look at the verse again. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This is the father's affection for his son who receives the vocation of a servant. (laughs) My soul is well pleased with him. He is my beloved and I delight in him. We serve the world not for the world's sake primarily, but for the sake of the Lord who we worship and love. Now, he will use us, and we want to see, we want, we want the joy of all people, right? We, we, we want to see this, but, but if, if you are serving to see fruit, if you're serving to see results, then you're going to be discouraged. And you're going to say, I'm not doing that again. But if we serve because of who God is and how he delights in us taking the disposition of a servant for his glory in the world and the joy of all people in him. And we serve and serve regardless of what we see because we know this delights him. That will give us motivation to keep going. The Lord delights in you just like he delights in Christ as a servant. And so I want to encourage you, church, this morning, first, just to continually Come to Christ in your own brokenness. When you realize how broken down you are by sin and suffering, remember that he is a Savior who will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. Come to him for forgiveness and help and grace. And then understand that he can take a bruised reed which someone else would have discarded. He can take your life, which someone else would have said that you can't do anything with that, and he will use you. He will use you as a broken person to reach broken people for his glory because of who he is. One day Christ will return, and he will bring justice to victory finally and forever to all who hope in his name today. And so let's follow him until that day. Let's embrace our vocation as his servants. Let's obey his mission to bring the hope of his name to all people. And let's do it according to his example of gentle and lowly ministry to broken people. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and what a savior he is. We praise you that um, though uh, we live in a world that thinks justice and victory come through power and through conquering that your son came in lowliness and humility and gentleness and that he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross that he bore the strokes of justice in our place that we can have forgiveness in him and and in his death and resurrection we can find hope or we're broken people but we pray that you would use us by your strength to reach more broken people in this community in our region, in our world. Help us to embrace your calling to be your servants, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.